Pachango. Chris, my name is Sam Walstenholm and I am currently travelling Australia. I'm about to head off on a trip up to Cape York. Uh, right now I'm sitting out in front of my good friend's house and just enjoying the sunrise, having a coffee. And I just want to send out there a big vibe of, you know, appreciation for everything you've done. I, uh, I've been a long time listener and never felt like it was the right time to reach out, but you know the i feel like the time's right now and i feel like i've just discovered something incredible recently which i've absorbed through you and i've absorbed through everything around me which is that there's no time but the present moment and the law of attraction is a real thing and whatever you put out in the world is what comes exactly back and we're real like our reality is manifested by our own thoughts and beliefs and if you believe in something it comes true and the, the amount of power in the universe that we behold is beyond our imagination and and it all just comes down to what you're putting out is what's bouncing back at you it's it's the law of attraction and it's what yeah it's it's the law of physics it's it's how energy moves every action has an equal and opposite reaction and it's um it's really simple when you when you believe it and you take it literally and and life has the potential to just be absolutely awesome if you let it if you believe it can be and we manifest what's in front of us by our beliefs and it, it all just comes bouncing straight back at you in the present moment and that's the only time that you can live so yeah now's the right time i wanted to spread my love and peace and positivity back to you and appreciate that what you've sent me has soaked in and and that yeah i've learned from your wisdom and and your podcast um i've i've been motivated to start my own podcast thanks to you so i started my own travel podcast and it's turned out awesome and i'll just yeah i did it with family and friends it's called setting forth and yeah i'm not doing it for any personal gain i'm, I'm doing it to spread my less message of love and peace and prosperity and being in control of your own life Thank you, Sam, and best of luck with the podcast. Um, this episode is with Joshua Fields Milburn, one of the minimalists, along with Ryan Nicodemus and T.K. Coleman. They've added a third minimalist. The, the minimalist crew appears to be expanding. I've had T.K. on the podcast in the past. You can check the the uh, archives for that episode. He's a cool guy. Um, but Joshua was uh, the only one uh, in the studio today when we recorded this. I just recorded this this morning. This is going up right away. Um, the occasion for the having Joshua on the podcast is that uh, their first documentary, <clears throat> which was housed on Netflix for years, I think seven or eight years, uh, they they just got the rights back and they posted it on their YouTube channel. And you can watch it for free, ad-free, fee-free, free-free, totally free. And, uh, and that's cool. That's definitely in keeping with the minimalist approach to things. 
Joshua's a great guy. They're all cool, funny, smart, and uh, very thoughtful. And it's apropos, um, that's the other reason I'm uploading this right away, is that this conversation is very kind of current, um, not only temporally, but also sort of philosophically for me, because um, a few years ago, Anya and I um, came across this property here in Crestone, and it's an unusual property. There was a bunch of uh, trash on the property, a couple of old trucks, um, a cabin, lots of just like tools and stuff lying around. And uh, we looked into it a little bit, found that the owner was a woman living in Chicago. And we wrote to her and we said, hey, what's what's going on with this property? Are you interested in selling it? Because it's kind of situated in an interesting spot. And um, anyway, she she got back in touch with us, and it turns out she had inherited the property from her brother who lived there, and he had died a few years earlier. And um, she's a really nice lady, Rosemary, and, and we chatted with her off and on for a while, and, and she decided she didn't want to sell it at that time because I guess her son was thinking he, he might come down and live here, and so they wanted to keep it in the family, and... Okay, so anyway, a couple of years go by, and a couple of months ago, Rosemary reached out and said, hey, are you still interested in that property? Because I think I'm ready to, to sell it. My son's not going to go down there. He's he's That was, you know, one of those things that didn't pan out. And um, anyway, so I was helping her clean it up, and I didn't know if we wanted to buy it and um, but in any case, I was helping her clean it up. And one of the things was going into this cabin where her brother had lived. John Racky was his name. And um, I guess what happened was John had a place in Boulder. And this was his kind of, uh, I don't know, bug out uh, refuge. It, it's a cabin up on stilts. And um, it's off-grid, totally off-grid. He had some solar panels and uh, big water tanks. I guess he trucked water in. And um, I don't know if he he did some sort of rain. um, You know, he caught the rain or what he did. But in any case, um, I went into the cabin and for the last couple of weeks, I've been cleaning it out. And it's very strange to enter into this space that this guy um, had prepared and to think about the connection. I mean, just today, I he had a flashlight in there and I changed the batteries. The batteries are dead and I put new batteries in and I was thinking like when he put the batteries in the last time, did he have any inkling at all that he would never change the batteries in that flashlight again? <clears throat> there was a bowl of popcorn on the table. Just sitting there. Four years since he died. 
There were bins of canned food and dried beans and lentils and everything meticulously labeled. I guess he was an engineer. And you could just see that this place was built and fitted out for him to survive some sort of apocalypse that he was anticipating. And yet he, like the canned goods outlived him, you know, the, I don't know. It's just, it's all very strange. Like the Unabomber died last week. I hate to even call him the Unabomber. Another guy, very, very intelligent, lived in a cabin in Montana, totally checked out from the world, angry at the world. And if you look into Ted Kaczynski, you'll find he had good reason to be angry at the world. Uh, There's some evidence that he was manipulated uh, by the CIA with uh, psychedelics. He went to Harvard at 16, made all sorts of discoveries, was apparently a mathematical genius. And... um, his life kind of spun out of control. And the more you look into it, the more suspicious the circumstances become. And then he outsmarted everybody. The FBI was looking for him forever and they couldn't find him. And I guess the reason he sent bombs to people was so that he could have some leverage to say, I'll stop sending bombs if you'll publish my manifesto in these major newspapers, which they did. And if you read his manifesto, it's not crazy. Uh, The things that he points to as being humiliating and demeaning and uh, degrading of quality of life for human beings and the other animals on the planet are true. Now, I'm not saying sending package bombs to computer scientists is the way to handle this situation. And I'm certainly not saying that anyone working in tech deserves to die or be maimed because of the effects of the stuff that they're working on. Uh, I don't agree with him. You know, it's like Marx. I agree with his analysis, but not with his prescriptions. Um, Anyway, it's it's just really interesting to think about materialism and minimalism and the things that we prepare for based upon the presumption that we're going to be here when the shit hits the fan and then it turns out that it's us that hits the fan. Think about that next time you're changing batteries in a flashlight or anything else or making yourself a bowl of popcorn you might not live to eat it. Isn't that fucking weird? Without further ado, I'm going to turn this over to the conversation with Josh. Uh, go check out their movie. the minimal. It's called Minimalism, full documentary, the official Netflix documentary available for free, commercial free on YouTube. Go to youtube.com forward slash at the minimalists thank you for listening thank you for your minimalism and your maximalism 
and your medialism. And I will uh, be back with you soon. I'm, I'm banking a lot of podcasts, so I'm going to release them uh, a little more frequently than usual if I can get around to all the behind-the-scenes work, getting them out. Um, anyway, yeah, thank you for listening, and I will uh, be back with you shortly. Unless I hit the fan. All right. It's just a couple of us uh, dudes in our black t-shirts hanging out, talking about minimalism. So is the black, I, I see you guys always wear black. You're like the fucking Johnny Cash of the 21st century. Johnny Cash's, is that the plural of Johnny Cash or is it Johnny's Cash? Never oh, sure about yeah. This. Attorney's General. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Attorney's General. That's exactly it. Like, yeah. I mean, if there were. If there were two bands called the Rolling Stones, would they be the Rolling Stoneses? <laughs> <laughs> you know, is Keith a Rolling Stone? Like, how does this work? I don't, you'd think I'd understand this shit after teaching English grammar for years. Right. You, uh, you got the memo though. You, I don't know if you felt like you were required to wear black for this, or maybe it is, has become your uniform as well. Well, we're going to be grieving, right? Is, is this a grieving <laughs> episode? <laughs> <laughs> uh no i got the memo a... yeah dude I, I got the memo years ago uh you know when i i mean in my case this is in your case but in my case it was like okay you put on a little weight you want to go for black the black hides the the beer belly a little bit and yes. also it removes the thinking about what am i going to wear today you know, it's like, I'm going to wear a fresh black t-shirt. That's what I'm going to wear today. Right. And it makes you so much more stylish than you actually are. That's the thing that I've understood. <laughs> People will think you're stylish just because I'm wearing black jeans and a black shirt. And so they're like, oh, are you a member of some sort of band? In fact, that happens quite a bit when Ryan and I go somewhere. They recognize us from somewhere, but they don't really know that they saw us on Netflix or YouTube or whatever. And so they're like, hey, what is we were in Nashville. This happened recently. So especially in a place like Nashville, right. what band are you guys in? Right. Uh, I think it was the New Yorker called. It said Ryan looks like an aging metal guitarist. And uh, the profile they do was like the best, like compliment insult sort of combined yeah. into one. Yeah. And, and yeah, I think ultimately, you know, it's funny. We've done a bunch of tours over the years, a bunch of book tours, uh, tours with our films and stuff. And when people come up to us afterward, we always do a hug line. You know, Ryan and our big time huggers. We've been accused by other um, outlets for being hug rapists which was a, a very strange uh, way to describe our consensual hugs that we give to people. I always ask people, especially post-COVID, you know, the social distancing thing. Yeah. I always ask, hey, I'm a hugger. Are you a hugger too, right? But the the thing that um, I realized as we uh, we go out to these events is the best-dressed people are always like hyper minimalist in some way. There's something called Project 333. I don't know if you heard about it. A friend of ours, Courtney Carver, wrote the book about it. It's just called Project 333. And she found that she was wearing very little of her clothing. Now, a lot of the clothes that we buy are sort of aspirational clothes, right? Like, oh, it looks mm. really great on the mannequin. So, of course, that perfect mannequin who's wearing the clothing that I really like, it's going to look great on me too. And then it never works out that way. And so we all have that oversized orange sweatshirt with tassels in the back of the closet 
that <laughs> we we bought once upon a time we wore it once we didn't like it then and then we just it just sits back there and that happens right. over and over and over again the average american throws away 88 pounds of clothing every year when most of it could be reused or recycled and a lot of it just has to do with the marketing messages we see we're bombarded with you know we used to have two seasons way back in the day you dress for the warm or you dress for the cold so i'd get my long sleeve black t-shirt out or whatever or my black jacket on but now thanks to fast fashion we have 52 cycles a year 52 seasons essentially hmm. and a lot of these fast fa fashion companies like h&m and other places have been caught sort of shredding clothes so that it can't be reused or resold or whatever because it's about that constant needing more, more, more. And what I've noticed is that people who participate in something like a minimalist wardrobe challenge like Project 333, they show up to our events and they're always the most fashionable people. Well, why is that? Because all of their clothes are their favorite clothes. Mm -hmm. Something like Project 333, it's like, oh, you can use 33 items over the course of three months. And that includes everything, your shirts, your pants, your shoes, your accessories. Now, I think the number is fairly arbitrary. I don't think it matters if you have 100 things or 33 things or 10 things. What is important is setting up some sort of boundaries there. Because within those boundaries, you tend to only hold on to the most versatile and useful things that you actually enjoy wearing. And right. if you don't enjoy wearing it, you, you just sort of get rid of it. It's like packing for life. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. You are a rather nomadic uh, a lot of the time. And you realize that sort of bringing everything with you literally and metaphorically weighs you down. And I think the same thing is true within yeah. our homes. The most yeah. staggering stat I've ever heard was from the LA Times that the average American household has 300,000 items in it. And I think that would be great if it was increasing our joy and happiness and we were reaching some sort of perpetual bliss point. As soon as you get 300,000 items, now you are satisfied and fulfilled and tranquil. But we all know that it ends up being the opposite of that. The the things get in the way. And that's the weird paradox of, of sort of being a minimalist is I actually get far more value from my material possessions now than when I was a, a closet hoarder. Closet hoarder. That's an interesting phrase. Yeah. Oh, I, I guess that, you know, I've never used that, but that could be a double entendre, right? Yeah. Because I had a lot of clothes in my closet. Right. I was a well, well organized hoarder, is often the way I describe it, right? Because I had an ordinal system of bins and boxes and oh, wow. alphabetized DVDs and CDs. And so, like, I'm kind of uptight. And, 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 um, I, I found that being so rigid with all of my stuff, and organized uh, organizing is just well-planned hoarding really when everyone's just organizing their stuff and folding everything correctly and having the correct bins from the container store i mean i think the container store is one of the biggest purveyors of something like hoarding mm, now it's easy for any of us to like yeah. sort of you, you can look at your tv and point at the people who are the stage five hoarders right you're like oh yeah there's feces on the floor and there's dead cats in the freezer i could never live like that no <laughs> most of us are at least stage one or stage two hoarders yeah when you look at the physician physician's desk reference of hoarding which is on the ocd spectrum stage one hoarder is a person with light clutter in two or more rooms 
Okay. I think that describes most people. Ryan and I were stage two or stage three hoarders at our corporate zenith because we owned a lot of stuff that was just sort of getting in the way. And I was really good at hiding it. You would have come over to my house and said, wow, they're really organized. But it was just a lot of useless stuff. And I was spending all the money I had and a bunch of money I didn't have going into great amounts of debt to buy a bunch of things I didn't need. So money I didn't have, buying things I didn't need to impress people I didn't even like. Right. You see this uh, chair back here, this green leather chair behind me? Indeed. Yeah, that was my, we just moved into this new house we were talking about before we started recording. And by the way, this house is 842 square feet. So minimalist. Twice the size of the van, probably. Um, <laughs> but anyway, my I was visiting LA, and uh, my mother said, "Do you want that chair? It's, you know, we're not really using it. It's been sitting around forever, and it's comfortable, and it's leather, and it's like a Swedish design." And I was like, "Yeah, I think I could put that chair to some good use." And she said, "Okay, great." And uh, well, hold on a second. And she left for no more than three minutes. She comes back, and she's got the receipt for the chair. That was purchased in 1997. <laughs> and, and she not only had it, she knew exactly where it was. That's my mother. Like she is the most organized, you know, but her sister, uh, my aunt Dorothy Ann is unorganized hoarder. She's just got stuff. She's got a garage. The attic is full of stuff. You can't get a car in the garage. It's so full of stuff. And every weekend she goes to the flea market and she buys more stuff and more stuff and more stuff. It's incredible. And it's getting to the point where we're starting to talk about like, you know, you're leaving a hell of a mess for your kids to deal with when you die. You know, like, yeah, what are they going right. to do? You're, and that's the thing is we don't realize the burden that our stuff creates in other people's lives as well. Yes, after we pass, obviously, no one really wants to take care of your stuff. Yes, there might be a few, a handful of sentimental items, right. like literally a handful of sentimental items. But the vast majority of the things are going to be a burden for someone else. The, our burdens today, the things we don't want to deal with today, end up becoming a burden for someone else in the future. But they're also a burden in other people, other people's lives right now, especially if we are cohabitating with someone. And then, of course, yeah, you want to respect other people's possessions. The thing with minimalism for me has never been prescriptive. I'm not saying I, I wish it was there. Here are the hundred items you should own and then you'll be happy. You'll have no more desire for, for material possessions. But of course, it doesn't work that way. The, the hundred items that I get a whole bunch of value from or the thousand items or however many items I own, they may be total junk to you chris and so like me saying well you should own these things no it's just going to get in the way and then of course the things that you really get a bunch of value from like what is this junk and so when we're living with someone quite often we have to respect and even get to the point where we can appreciate the things that add value to their life but if they're burdened by stuff that permeates our lives in so many other ways i mean the physical clutter the material possessions are sort of this physical manifestation of everything that's going on inside us. So if I've got a lot of physical clutter, there's a good chance I've got a bunch of emotional clutter or mental clutter, or spiritual clutter, or right. whatever you want to call it. Calendar clutter, relationship clutter, political clutter, information clutters, all these different types of clutter 
that go way beyond the material possessions. Right. I, w- I wanted to get into that. Um, but before we do, I, there was one question that came to my mind when you're talking about this three, three, three project, how yeah. do the, where do the minimalists stand on underwear? You guys <laughs> commando, uh, is that part of the minimalist doctrine or what? The funny thing is I, uh, Oh, my mother always told me to always answer an unserious question unseriously. But uh, I actually think you're asking this legitimately. So <laughs> it's, in my life, I'll tell you, what, my my thing actually is surprisingly serious. When I was a little kid, I was doing Kung Fu. I took Kung Fu classes for years. It was like the uh-huh. biggest thing in my life. And I remember I was eight when I started. And one of the first things they they gave me a list of like, you know, uh, a Kung Fu man does this and does that and doesn't do this and doesn't do that. And one of, I mean, it was things like you never fight unless your life or another's life is in danger. You always run away if you can. You avoid conflict, no matter how tough you think you are, no matter how skilled. Um, But uh, two of them I remember was a Kung Fu man always sleeps naked and does not wear underwear. And the <laughs> the reasoning was that you are trying to be as kind of constantly and deeply in touch with your physicality as you can be. So you you keep that relationship with your body alive, which I, you know, at the time I was like, fuck yeah, whatever, you know, I want to be a Kung Fu man when I grow up. Um, but so that's, that's the, uh, the sort of origins of my sleeping naked and not wearing underwear. I guess I'm half a Kung Fu man then. Uh, I, I definitely sleep naked. Um, I do wear underwear, but I will say this. In fact, our first film, Minimalism, which just came out on YouTube after seven years on Netflix, there's a scene in there that everyone always remembers. When I travel, I usually wear black underwear, but I have one pair of red underwear. But that's how I keep my my dirty underwear separate from the clean underwear, which was a real problem for me at one point. I was accidentally putting on the dirty underwear and uh, which seems like a metaphor for something i don't just know give it a it sniff test man if you can't <laughs> smell it it's clean what are you talking about here's what i will say about underwear though is <laughs> i i've recently figured out uh that i only want cotton on my body or something that is not synthetic and right. i think we're going to see a lot of research over the course of the next decade that shows how harmful synthetic materials are especially when we wear them on our genitalia there's a lot of uh forever chemicals that are associated mm. with a lot of this active wear it's being that a lot of people are wearing especially a lot of women are forced to wear these forever chemicals because it's in vogue to wear pants from lululemon or wherever and these forever chemicals are just right there at our crotch and it happens to all of us with synthetic underwear synthetic shirts synthetic jackets whatever it is and i just don't want those synthetic forever chemicals on my body 24 hours a day right right that makes sense yeah no i i agree 100 cotton when possible of course you know cotton's got pesticides and you know it's <clears throat> I mean, it, we're we're at the point now where there there's no refuge from this stuff. It's incredible how it permeates life. When I was when I was preparing for this podcast, I was thinking about one of the things about this town, uh, Crestone, that uh, when I first read about it years ago in Spain, um, one of the things that really attracted me was 
that this is the only place in North America that has a permit for open air cremations. So uh, if you're a resident of Crestone and you've signed up for this, when you die, there's a pyre just outside of town in the desert and they will take your body out there and, you know, people will come out and stand in a circle around the, the pyre and they'll burn your body right there in the morning. You know, firewood, it's wrapped in a white sheet. It's it's sort of a, like an Asian Indian kind of uh, by the Ganges kind of ritual. And one of the things that strikes me about American culture, sort of symbolic of, of the way Americans look at things is, you know, I think at the heart of what you guys are struggling with um, or struggling to, to help people understand is this idea this this sort of denial of mortality and that we yes. lodge ourselves in these physical objects um mm -hmm. as a way of denying that we ourselves are much less lasting than the flashlights or the i mean all all this stuff right and then we yeah. you know we preserve the body with formaldehyde and we put the body in a hermetically sealed stainless steel coffin, which is just cluttering the earth, you know, for 10,000 years or whatever. It's this sort of like somehow through material objects, we can stave off the passing of time. Yeah. Yeah. We, yeah uh, two things. One serious, one funny. There's, I think these difficult situations, we talk about death. It always helps to add some levity into it. In my will, and this is real, uh, in my will, it says that I encourage Ryan and my wife, Bex, to uh, decapitate my body and play soccer with my head. And I think adding that sort of level of levity into anything like this allows us to discuss things that we are terrified to talk about. We're afraid to death to talk about death. And one of the ways that we try to stave off death is through the accumulation of objects. On the Minimalist podcast recently, we did an episode about the false self, yeah. which Jed McKenna refers to as the ego. And I think part of that ego is whatever we adorn ourselves with. Our, our second book, which came out a decade ago, was called Everything That Remains. And the first line of that book is, our identities are shaped by the costumes we wear. And... Quite often we form this identity. So I would call it identity clutter. Any of those things that like, this is me, this is who I am. It can be the the title on my business card. Or mm. I am the director of operations for these retail stores, or I am the COO or whatever it is, whatever concept we've created, creates some sort of identity clutter. But then we show our identity through our accoutrements. So when I was hyper successful in the corporate world, at least ostensibly successful, I had the accoutrements of success, the big house in the suburb, suburbs with, with more toilets than people, right? You just, uh, I had uh, closets full of designer clothes that were paid for with credit cards. I had several luxury cars. Um, I had a dining room and a separate room like with a kitchen table that we ate at. And so, you know, I guess you had to like, you, you have to work really hard to try to eat at two tables at once. And yet I did. Right. And gotta so have a nook, people, man. <laughs> you have to have the nook. <laughs> and, and 
Uh, I even had a bunch of books, right? That's part of identity clutter as well. I don't think there's anything wrong with books. I write books, I read books, I enjoy books, but I had about 2000 books, some of which I'd actually read, but I had to, <laughs> I had to have a bunch more. Why? Because I'm the type of person who has books. It has a uh, curated collection. Look how important I am, right? right. Uh, this says something about who I am as a human being. This yeah. type of espresso maker defines me as a man, or I need this kind of couch, or I need th this type of suit or belt or wallet, whatever it is, this is who I am. And so we heap all of these things onto our persons and into our homes and eventually becomes clutter because none of it actually does it for us. All the things that we buy to make us happy don't end up doing their job. They don't make us happy. In fact, the objects of our desire quickly become the objects of our discontent. And I'm not against desire at all, but I think understanding that there are at least two different types of desire and, and sort of trying to break that down and understand that like part of desire is like, yes, there's that carnal um, that need to to get something right. But when your happiness or contentment is is predicated on the acquisition of something, that's when it often makes us miserable. There's another right. kind of desire where it's like, yeah, I can pursue it. And if I get it, if I have sex or if I get the car or whatever it is, great. If I don't get it, life's going to be okay as well. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I, I have a complicated relationship with desire. I don't know if you've heard me talking about it recently. Um, on yeah, a little podcast. bit. Yes. Yeah, I uh, I was at a New Year's Eve party, and there was a, a Buddhist monk there, and um, <laughs> you know, we started talking about desire, and here I am, like arguing with this Buddhist monk about desire, and it's one of those conversations where you're having it with someone, and and you, like halfway into it, you realize, like, I don't really want to convince this guy that I'm right because if I do, it'll like make his life kind of fall apart, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, well, probably, what was your argument though what, my argument like, was that desire is not is not necessarily a problem i mean it's basically like what you just said i you know i think in buddhism this idea of uh desire being an uh, um an obstacle to enlightenment is probably hmm. based on bad translations mixed with american cultural overlay um yeah you know, where everything is either or black or white, you know, an enemy or a friend or whatever. And, um, yeah, my, my relationship with desire in, you know, it goes back to the list of a Kung Fu man, the qualities of a Kung Fu man likes, loves women and desires women. And is not ashamed of that. Right. That might yeah. be a little homophobic. I don't remember anything. This was, you know, <laughs> 1974 or something. I don't know. Uh, how they would have felt about desiring uh, someone of your own sex. But uh, the idea that desire is simply part of biological existence and is nothing to be ashamed of and is not, uh, you know, a distraction necessarily or, uh, you know, an obstacle to wisdom or enlightenment or anything like that. I've always, that makes a lot of sense to me. But I understand how desire can become pathological just like anything else can, right? So yes. the problem isn't the thing itself. Like people, some I had a, a guy recently asked me 
uh, to consult with him about his sex addiction. And what I was trying to say to him is that I don't think there's any such thing as sex addiction. I think there's addiction, right? I think there's yeah. sex, but it's not about the sex. It's not about the gambling. Mm -hmm. It's not about the hoarding. It's not about the objects in your garage, as you were saying earlier. It's how those things are a reflection of some internal state that is temporarily alleviated by the process of accumulating those things, right? And, mm -hmm. and is never really satisfied. So you have to keep doing it and doing it and doing it. So it's not that this guy's addicted to sex, is that it's that this guy has a a, a hole that he can't fill, but he can kind of cover it over temporarily through sex. But you know, like a, holes, right? <laughs> exactly, the hole in the hole. So if there were no, it just occurred to me when you were talking. If there were no copyright issues, it seems like the anthem of the minimalists would be. I can't get no satisfaction by the Rolling Stones. I can't yeah. be a man because he doesn't wear this or smoke the same cigarettes as me. His, you know, he, his shirts aren't as white. It, it, it's this whole like anthem just denouncing the sort of like, you will be happy if you do what the ads tell you to do, what the culture tells you to do. It's a really wise song, actually. Yeah, yeah. In fact, you know, if I were to rephrase it a bit, it's that you can get satisfaction, but satisfaction is fleeting and, and there's no perpetual satisfaction. And right. I think that is the promise of consumerism. Consumerism is merely the ideology that buying things is going to make me whole, you know, complete, or it is going to make me happy. Right. right. Happiness must be right around the bend. And as soon as I get there, I will be forever happy. And there's this, whatever one person means by happiness, you can find 10 other people who mean something completely different. And so sometimes I, I find that it helps to be more specific. What does someone want out of happiness? What, what does that mean? Because some people might want extreme pleasure and excitement. Someone else might want a life of peace. So the monk you're talking to might say, well, peace is his form of happiness or tranquility or whatever. And therefore, these unnecessary desires are getting in the way of that peace. They're disturbing the peace. And there's someone else who needs to fl fly the squirrel suits every day in order to feel happy or alive. <laughs> yeah. And that's a life of chaos to the monk, right? And it doesn't mean the monk is wrong or bad, or it doesn't mean the squirrel suit guy is wrong or bad. Where we pathologize these things and we say desire is bad is when we start to become prescriptive, like the Kung Fu list where it's like, every man should desire a woman. Okay, well, what about gay men? What about trans men? What about... Um, what about... An asexual person, should they desire sex with a woman? Well, no, not necessarily. There's no shoulds here, right? right? It's as long as we're not coercing someone or trying to convince them that they should be or live a particular way, then yeah, I mean, I, I think that the same way that we make gloves with 10 fingers, and it doesn't mean that someone's wrong for having nine fingers or 11 fingers, right? I think the same is true with that Kung Fu guide, right? Like, it's like, yeah, most men desire having sex with women. Now, your friend with the the sex addiction, 
he might just have really high testosterone and he's been told by society what that one should be a monogamous b they should be less libidinous than the yeah, the people with high libido or they, they should be fall within some average libido and if they're beyond that they're not just different from the norm they are wrong because they're different from the norm yeah yeah this particular guy um had a life with very high adrenaline for a long time yeah. and he retired from that and so mm. i think his thing is like where's all the excitement right like he adapted to this incredibly high level of excitement like mm. you know let's say a squirrel suit flyer kind of guy and suddenly the squirrel suit days are over and now he's just hanging out at home and puttering around the yard and it's like that ain't enough you know like yeah. it's just not yeah and, and that's hard i mean what do you do that's that's a you know because we do adapt to things the first time i ever felt depressed that i can recall and i didn't have a, a name for it then because well i, I uh we went on a year-long book tour it's 10 months so 2014 100 cities 119 events and 700 media appearances it was like this year of that was my version of the, the squirrel suit we donated a year of our lives made all the events free and just sort of went out there and and talked to thousands of people tens of thousands of people and in doing that i got home and so i'm, I'm just going to take a month off from all this right and i i sort of got whiplash from it right. because it was going from one extreme to another one extreme that it was not sustainable to another extreme that was not sustainable it was going from 100 miles an hour to zero miles and all of a sudden i didn't know what to do with myself and oh who am i as a person i i had started to f form this new identity like oh but i'm the kind of person that goes out and helps people and and uh and I think that was that was also toxic in a way, because anytime we start to cling to something like that, that's when the desire it becomes a problem when it leads to some sort of clinging. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's amazing how quickly you can get accustomed to. You know, a few thousand people applauding you every night. Right. And then yeah. you don't have that. And it's like, well, there's an emptiness. There's a silence. What is it? You know, it's hard to identify it's it's like we adapt to sugar or whatever it is or noise you know it's it's crazy you know i'm sure you've heard this expression getting back to what i was saying earlier about packing for life uh we we pack uh i, I forget exactly the way the saying is but it's like we pack according to our fears you ever heard that mm, like we yes. we anticipate every potential problem and throw that in the suitcase like, well, what yeah. if they don't have nail clippers where I'm going? And what if I need to get a haircut and I can't find anyone to do it? I need the scissors. And, you know, what if it's cold? I need the down jacket. And what if it's warm? I need the shorts. And what if I want to go swimming and I need those? And then what if the, what if my swimsuits are wet and I want to go swimming again? Well, I need a second pair. It's like, it's all this anticipating and the assumption that what I need won't be available. Right. I, it's I, I the think Go the ahead. three most dangerous words in the English language are just in case <laughs> because they, <laughs> yeah. they, yeah. they justify, you know, I've got the story at the very beginning of our very first book tour in 2011, Ryan and I were in his Toyota Corolla. We drive down to Florida. We we're the minimalists now, right? We're these simple living guys. 
And we get down to St. Petersburg, Florida for our first ever tour stop. Eight people showed up, which was awesome. And when we opened our trunk, we had five cities we were going to for this little leg of the tour. We opened the trunk and Ryan looks over at me. He goes, we're total fucking hypocrites because we had packed a bunch of items just in case. Oh, you know what? We're going to be in Florida, so I might as well bring some swim trunks. But what happens if they get wet? I'll pack an extra pair just in case. And then we start to justify piling on everything. And so we had a suitcase. We had two duffel bags. I had a garment bag. And there was a suit in my garment bag. I don't know if there's like an impromptu funeral or something I plan on attending. <laughs> but I brought it. a funeral. <laughs> right. I brought it just in case. I don't even yeah. know just in case of what. Right. And I think as soon as we start talking these things out, just in case, well, okay, well, what's the worst thing that could happen? And what we realized is um, we came up with something we call the 2020 rule. And I've used it for over a decade <laughs> now. And it has helped me get rid of so many just-in-case items. Basically, a 2020 rule goes like this. Anything that I own that I'm holding on to just in case, I can let go of it because I can replace it for less than $20 in less than 20 minutes from wherever I am. Now, that rule has worked every... It's worked 100% of the time for me and for Ryan. And at first, it sounds like an incredible rule of privilege. Like, oh my God, I don't want to go out spending 20 bucks every day to replace my just-in-case items. Together, Ryan and I have had to use it five times in the last decade. So I've spent about a hundred bucks, but it's given me the permission to not pack a bunch of excess bullshit that I don't need when I'm traveling and also to get rid of all of those things in my home I'm holding on to just in case. And in fact, we um, a few years ago wrote a free ebook. It's called The Minimalist Rule Book 16 Rules for Living with Less. And uh, they're not really rules. They're just boundaries that are really elastic. You can adjust them to your life. And it's available to download for free at theminimalists.com. But one of those rules in there is the just-in-case rule. And I, I, I juxtapose that with the just-for-win rule. There are certain things that, like, yes, I buy just for when I'm going to need them. Like, usually consumables, like I have toilet paper. I don't buy my toilet paper one square at a time or my my toothpaste one nurdle at a time, which is nurdle? the marketing word. Yeah, that's it? the marketing word for the the little bit of toothpaste you put on the end of your toothbrush. Oh, shit. Wow. And, and so <laughs> what I've realized is that there's some things I buy just for when I need them. I have to be honest with myself about that. But anything I'm holding on to just in case is probably a lie or some narrative that I've invented in my head there's a reason I should hold on to that. But it, those things actually kept me from being free. So now there's any time there's something I'm holding on to just in case. I If, I don't, if I'm not going to use it within the next 90 days, which is another rule that we have there, the seasonality rule. Have I used this in the last 90 days? Will I use it in the next 90 days? If not, I give myself permission to let it go because I would hold on to a lot of things just in case. Now, now to be clear, one, one last thing about just in case yeah. items. There's a little sub subcategory of just in case items. That I would call emergency items. These are like just in case items you hope you never have to use, like jumper cables for your car. Or when I lived in Montana, it was you know, chains for for my tires. You know, I'm in Southern California now. I don't have those chains anymore, but I needed those emergency items just in case there was a true emergency or a first aid kit or a plunger for my toilet. I own a plunger, even though I hope I don't have to use it, but sometimes, you know. Sometimes we're full of shit. <laughs> yeah, when you're talking about just in case and how it's it can be based on a a narrative that's completely unrealistic, 
the image that popped into my head was me having a condom in my wallet when I was 13. <laughs> it was like, dude, you're never going to, you're oh, not going to, you broke up on me a little bit, Chris. Oh, uh, I, I was saying that the image that, can you hear me now? We're good. Yeah. The image, the image that came to my head when you're talking about just in case being based on a, a silly, un, unrealistic narrative was me at 13 years old with a condom in my wallet. And like, I might need it. You never know. <laughs> you never know. You know, got to be prepared. <laughs> nope. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that becomes an emergency item in a different way. I keep a condom in my first aid kit in my car. I, maybe I'm divulging too much information, but or a tourniquet. Uh, yeah. To use as a tourniquet. <laughs> yes, of course. <laughs> or if you're hyperventilating, you, you breathe into it like a paper bag, right? <laughs> so okay so here's here's the question i'm sure you guys get a lot i don't think i've ever asked you this but i imagine you get it a lot how do you square being the minimalist with 10 speaking tours and you know netflix specials and five books and you know podcasts and like churning out all this product yeah all this content you guys are tireless mm. uh it, is there a point at which the minimalists say okay we've said it enough anyone who wants to wants to read our message can find it all over the fucking place i'm yeah. going to the bahamas and i'm just going to chill for the rest of my life is that a form of minimalism yeah, yeah, I think so. I, I'm not an ascetic, and I'm I'm not a monk, and I enjoy working a lot. But if it was the same all the time, I, I yeah, I, I'm with you. I would just be like, like, all right, here's the book you go to, or here's the film you go to, and then we're done. But I think what we've done has evolved pretty substantially over the years. It started with the material clutter, but now I've just found all different types of clutter in my life and other people's lives. And so, yeah, people come to us because we're the minimalists. And so we still talk about material possessions about 20% of the time. But minimalism is really just the Trojan horse for us to talk about whatever the fuck we want to talk about. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, and plus we brought TK on, on as a co-host about a year ago. And that's really opened up um, our podcast philosophically as well. You know, he's a, a philosopher. He's also an educator. He works with a lot of kids and uh, a, a lot of uh, underserved and underprivileged communities. And so bringing him on has given us an additional perspective that maybe we didn't have before, but it allows us to talk about some things like political clutter or food clutter. We just did a podcast episode about food clutter recently. And we talk about some foods to avoid because usually when we think about diet, it's like, what are the right foods that I should eat to make me healthy? And it's like, well, yeah, that's part of it. But in life, it's usually about what we need to remove more mm. than what we need to add into our life. And the, I think that's been the ethos of the minimalists from the beginning. We just look at it through a bunch of different lenses now, digital clutter or news media clutter or social right. media clutter, whatever the, the different type of clutter is. And so we're exploring all of these other areas that uh, the one rule that I have is that it needs to be fascinating to me because even if other people find it fascinating, but if I'm not that interested in it, I, I can tell that the creativity will suffer. But uh, the one secret that I have is I don't really do much. I know it looks like that from the outside because you can go look in the rear view and there's a lot of sort of quote unquote, accomplishments. Uh, but I only 
tend to do one big project at a time and then everything else serves that in some way. And so it looks like a lot is being produced, but I'm, I'm actually not very productive or, or even that efficient. Like I just enjoy doing the things that I do. I write every day and maybe that's the one thing that I, but most of that doesn't ever see the light of day. And then occasionally something will be seen. Um, as we've gotten more quote unquote successful, I, I actually don't think success exists and we, I'm sure we could talk about that, but uh, as, as we've been perceived to be more successful and really the only thing that we've done with that is we've brought more people on so that I don't have to do everything on, on my own. So when you come over, you've been to our studio a few times and the minimalist isn't just me and Ryan and, and now TK and we have a, a studio manager and we have a person who works on our TikToks and we have a person who films a podcast. We have an audio engineer. We have, we, we have, you know, there's a team of like 28 people total that uh, I don't have to manage all of them, but um, it's basically so I don't have to do a bunch of things I don't want to do anymore. Right. I guess hiring people is one way to do that. The other way to do that which is the path I've taken is to hire nobody and just keep the operation really, really low level. Right. Like I, yeah. I don't have anyone who does anything. <laughs> I don't have TikTok. I don't have any of that. I do it all myself. Um, yeah. It's, it's interesting. I, I, is, is how does finance work into this? Can you, yeah. it, can you have a cluttered bank account? Like you have oh, more, definitely more money than you'll ever need. Is that another form of the same? Is that another expression of the same kind of pathology we're talking about? Absolutely. And I think it goes on both ends. So the the bigger problem, especially in America, is debt, non-mortgage debt specifically, right? So the average of indebted American household has $97,775 in non-mortgage debt. So call it six figures worth of non-mortgage debt. And that's made up primarily of your student loans, your credit cards, and your auto loans, all, all three of which you can have without you can get without any debt at all um and i think that but the problem is we live beyond our means and and that is often exacerbated by advertisements and so advertisement clutter right the average american according to forbes sees 5000 advertisements a day i actually disagree with that stat a little bit those aren't all advertisements um i define advertisements a little more narrowly than that but suffice it to say we see a lot of marketing messages that make us feel inadequate. And so what do we do? We borrow from our future selves with money we don't have today, punishing our future self to buy something right now. Now, the other side of that, which you mentioned, is the hoarding of resources, whether that is square footage or it is excess money. Yeah, that can become a problem as well. I'm not. What am I making the money for, Right. Well, before it was, I'm, I'm, am I making money to just buy things? Okay, nothing wrong with things. I, it's one of the biggest misconceptions. I'm not against stuff. I'm not against material possessions. And I'm certainly not against money either. I'm not allergic to money. If anyone wants to send me anything, money via Venmo, I'm, I'm totally for it. But um, I don't, the metaphor I like to use is money is a passenger in the car. And I think we do ourselves a disservice when we pretend money isn't important at all. In the society we live in, money is, is an important part, but it doesn't get to drive the car. 
And for the longest time for me, money was the primary driver for doing what I did. I grew up really poor, and I think that's I think that's part of it. We were really unhappy yeah. when I was growing up, and I thought the reason we were so unhappy is we didn't have any money. And so when I turned 18, I went out and I climbed the corporate ladder, and I made really good money, especially for living in Dayton, Ohio. In the late 90s and throughout the 80s, I made a couple hundred thousand dollars a year, but I had tremendous amounts of debt. I was spending more money than I made, and I didn't know why I was doing it. And I think, I think ultimately it comes down to what is enough? And we never stop to ask that question, whether it has to do with material possessions, has to do with the clothing that we own, has to do with the number of cars or the amount of money in our bank account. What is enough money? And because we don't know what enough is, we always assume more, more, more is going to be the thing that makes us complete or makes us happy or, uh, of course, allows us to be more generous, right? That was the lie I always told myself. You know, If I just made more money, then I could be more generous. I remember when I left the corporate world in 2011, I went from making $200,000 a year. I made $23,000 in 2011. So I took about a 90% pay cut. But I was more generous that year with my money than I had been the previous decade combined. Yeah. And it's not because um, I didn't want to be generous before. It's because I made a decision. If you can't be generous when you are when, when you have identified what enough money is right now, you're not going to be generous in some non-existent hypothetical future. And so the question with money is not whether it's good or bad or evil or or whatever is what is enough and what am I going to do with it? And so the question is enough for what? What do I want to do with that money? Yeah. Yeah, I think money falls into the class of things that start out at low levels necessary uh, and then move. There's a very small sort of transition where there's the sweet spot and then more is toxic. Yeah. Uh, fame, money, power, food, oxygen, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, uh, maybe alcohol. The The research is mixed on that one. Um, sure. But there's so many things that a little bit you really need. It's really good for you. But, you know, it's, it's a medicine at a low level and it becomes a poison at a higher level. There are so many things like that. Yeah, it's interesting. Do you think you guys, I mean, you mentioned being recognized on the street and all that. I've always, you know, I feel like I, I reached a, a sort of very low intensity level of recognizability, and and I don't even want to call it fame because it's not really fame, but you know, people recognize me from you know seeing me on Rogan's podcast or my TED talk or this or that, um, and it it felt to me. Um, and now I live in this tiny town in the middle of nowhere, so I, I, it's all fading away. I think, but while it was happening, it it felt like like I was in that sweet spot, like I was just, it was just right because everybody who said hi to me was friendly, yeah. right? Nobody was like, oh, that's that asshole I saw on Rogan. It's like, oh, that's that guy who said, you know, I read his book, and it, it's always a, a friendly, happy kind of thing. Do you feel you guys are are in that? I imagine you're in a pretty sweet spot there. You know, there's this great Jonathan Franz in line from his book, Freedom. There's a character in there who has become famous. He's a musician. His name is Richard Katz. 
and he um he says he gets recognized all the time he says fame is the one thing that he hates but would not want to live without and i think <laughs> that's a toxic level of fame right where you become ubiquitously famous i remember right. once i was in a sauna with justin bieber accidentally like we didn't plan this together and you you could just tell like oh this is the most famous man on the planet most likely That's right funny. and um he was good at hiding because you could realize that like he could get mobbed at any moment by yeah. by fans and a lot of people who would say really unkind things to him now i think the difference is with what we do or with what you do you are famous for the right things and you know, I often talk about your your second book, Civilized to Death, which is there are like six nonfiction books I wish I would have written, and that's definitely one of them. I mean, you could have called it the case for minimalism, and and also how we mm. sort of struggle for the uh, between modernity because none of us are trying to be the Hadza. There's no one who's like really going to go live with the Hadza uh, uh, for the rest of their lives. There might be one or two people who become hermits and 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 sort of a recluse who lives in alaska by themselves or or something like that but the vast majority of society realizes that there is much to recommend about our technological advances even though they have tremendous costs and i think that's the problem when we pretend they don't have any costs whatsoever and i think the same thing can be said for for fame yeah ryan and i get recognized a lot because we've had a couple films on netflix and the podcast is pretty popular we actually started the podcast to promote our first film and before it was on youtube and before it was on netflix we did a a theatrical release with it and um and that was really nice i was some not something i would ever do again because you learn the term hollywood math and everyone sort of takes their has their hand in the cookie jar and um it's just a lot of work for not a whole lot of reward but um before it, it went on netflix we had a a much lower level of being recognized. We get recognized occasionally and we were doing tours back then and stuff. But as soon as it hit Netflix, I noticed the, the whole dynamic of our um, audience change, you know, before it was like parents bringing, dragging their kids to our live events. And then it started being kids dragging their parents and their grandparents the, to these events saying, Hey, I don't want to be burdened by your stuff or you're living with so many things and I have to live in your household and it's making all of us miserable. And, and so I, I noticed that there was this different level there and it's something that I signed up for accidentally. I didn't know all of the, the sort of side effects. I never at the beginning desired to be famous, but I will share one thing with you. I think it got kind of toxic at the very beginning for me because I know that word's overused, but I mean it in a sense that, um, as soon as it showed up, I found myself wanting more of it, more validation, more affirmation. And um, it was a sickness in a way. And it took about a, a year or two years to really let go of that. The desire for more adulation or more mm -hmm. fame or whatever yeah. it might be um, actually got in the way of producing the things that I enjoyed producing because then you start chasing it. And right. I think when the Buddhists talk about desire, what they're really talking about is a chase. Yeah. And, and, and that chase for more because it's never enough. Right. Yeah. Fame is a lot like cocaine in my experience. I, I think it's, you know, it's a very temporary patch uh, on, on despair. 
And in my experience, the people who are the most <clears throat> ready to uh, kind of, you know, get addicted to cocaine are people who have a lot of despair, a lot of sadness, a lot of, you know, whatever it was, you know, they didn't have, there's a great song. I, I love the genre of songs by very famous musicians pissing on the idea of fame. Uh, <laughs> there's one by George Michael called Star People. You should definitely check it out. That would be another great, like if you guys ever do, I don't know if you do like minimalist playlists or something, but actually we do. Those, we, we, yeah, Star absolutely. People has to be on it. Star People counting their money till their eyes turn green. And the, the refrain is, um, maybe your mama didn't love you enough, girl. Maybe your daddy didn't raise you right, boy, or something like that. And it's all like, you know, calculated, what does he say? Adding up or calculating the cost of your desire to be seen. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And, and the, the fascinating thing about that is who better to talk about it than a famous person? Because right. it's easy for the average person on the street to either say fame would be great or fame would be awful, but they don't have that sort of perspective. They, they see the 2D version of a 3D issue, right? Because Fame has much to recommend it, right? Um, you know, people buying your coffee at a coffee shop or or whatever, like, or just allow using that fame to then, you know, one thing that Ryan and I have done with any bit of notoriety that we've built up is over the last decade or so, we've done a whole lot of philanthropic projects. We've built two orphanages. We uh, funded a high school for a year. We built an elementary school in Laos and uh, we helped the victims of, uh, Hurricane Harvey and the Orlando Pulse nightclub shooting. And, and so we've been able to do that, not because Ryan and I have a bunch of money. We don't. We're not millionaires, but I, I found out what is enough for me. I could very easily be a millionaire at this point, but we don't do any advertisements on our podcast, on our YouTube mm. channels, 100% advertisement free. I, I've decided what is enough for me. So what we do is we lean on our audience. Right. Um, we're from Dayton, Ohio, which had until recently the second largest food desert in the nation. The west side of Dayton, which is where roughly 40% of Dayton lives, didn't have a single grocery store in it, not one grocery store. And so what we did is we built a grocery co-op there. We helped build one with the help of our audience and literally through $1 donations, we were like, hey, buy a brick for us, you know, metaphorically, give us a dollar and uh, you are buying a brick for this co-op and having hundreds of thousands of people donate money to build a a grocery store in a food desert. It doesn't just provide food, but provides food education because it's easy to give have food. Every liquor store has food like products, you know, Twinkies and and Snickers bars or whatever. But actual healthy meats and vegetables and fruits that nourish people was something that they weren't even used to there because for the better part of a generation, it had been a food desert. People were getting their their food from either church's chicken or from the local 7-Eleven equivalent. And so um, that's been one great thing about fame. But the other side of fame is just like, depends what kind of person you are. What is your constitution? And for me, I, I know that probably growing up, I felt like I didn't get enough validation. And so mm -hmm. when I started getting validation, it became the point of doing what I was doing. Right. And that that was the dark side of it for me. And it took a while to to really let go of that. It's um, 
in our first film, Minimalism, uh, Jim Carrey has a line in there. and He, he said that, uh, I wish everyone could become rich and famous so they see that it's not the point of right. life. Right. And and at first people were like, yeah, it's easy for him to say. It's like, well, who better to say it? Right. Because when I grew up really poor, and my mom never made more than $18,000 a year, and usually we were on food stamps and government assistance, I couldn't come to you and say, being rich and famous is not the point of life. I didn't have that perspective. Yeah. But Jim Carrey has that perspective. He saw that it wasn't the point. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's a it's a conundrum, right? Because it's almost like people who are in a position to know are somehow seen as invalidated by being in the position to know, you know? That's right. It's like, oh, it's easy for you to say, Mr. Famous Movie Star. You know, you know it's like, wait, you're not... It's it's as if like anyone who'd ever been to China is in has no right to comment on the on China. It's like wait a minute, that's the person who's been there. Of course they're the ones who know. It's crazy. Yeah, have you, other other podcasts and other other writers um that sort of align with you guys. I wonder if you you were talking about finances earlier. Have you ever um followed Mr. Money Mustache? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Um uh, we've, in fact, I think we might have met him once early on, at, like uh, one of Chris Gillibo's events. But yeah, I, uh, um, I, I find you know, his extreme frugality is almost a—it's simultaneously really fascinating and compelling, but I could see how it turns some people off as well, right? Because for me, minimalism was never about being so hyper frugal. That was almost a byproduct of simplifying my life i realized that when i own 95 percent fewer things than i used to own i also purchase 95 percent fewer things than mm. i used to purchase and so i almost became frugal by default now mm. of course that wouldn't always be the case you know you can buy i guess if i ate caviar at every meal then well i'm just i'm having a real simple meal but it'd be really expensive right but i think i've become frugal by proxy mm. Interesting. Yeah. Frugal by proxy. That's there's a, there's a book. I don't know if you've read this. It, it was, I think it might've been written in the eighties. I think uh, it's been updated since then, but it's called your money or your life. Right. Fantastic. I never read it, but I've heard of it. Oh, fantastic book and great title. Right. Um, but it, it, it aligns with a lot of what you guys talk about. It, it's very much like, you know, you're spending your life chasing money, literally spending your life, right? Yes. <laughs> chasing yes. money, and you're not going to get more life. So, right. like, stop spending it. You're 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 wasting it. You know. Um, yeah. There's no there's no refund for misspent time. You yeah. can misspend your money and find a way to get back that resource, but the most precious resource is our, our time, but really our attention. Is, mm. is even more precious than our time because mm. I could spend time with you. Like we could be on this Zoom together. Or you could be here in the studio with us and I could be there with you temporarily, but I may not be giving you my attention. And so I'm just wasting right. the truly most precious resource. And so whatever I'm giving my attention to is is truly the priority. It's It's maddening that word priority didn't have a plural until the 20th century. Uh, now we talk about our priorities, right? But priority literally means the first thing. So if I tell you, Chris, I've got wow. 16 priorities. I'm I saying I have that. 16. 
the first things. Wow, it doesn't even make sense. Yeah, yeah, it's literally nonsensical. Well, and it's especially relevant given the fact that we now live in the attention economy, right? Mm-hmm. Where all these apps and all these this technology, it, it, it isn't even going for our money anymore. I mean, secondarily it is, but first, primarily, it wants our attention. It wants the eyeballs. It wants the clicks. It wants the likes, right? Because then that leads to money and targeted ads and all this kind of shit. Um, but yeah, it's really interesting. You were talking about different forms of clutter earlier, and I was thinking about concern clutter, mm-hmm. you know, and I mean, and I don't mean to denigrate the fact that people have great reason to be concerned. You know, I was thinking yesterday, I was, I was sort of making a mental list of, um, all the things that are predicted to collapse within the next 10 years, the, the fisheries of the world's oceans, the Amazon as the, the world's lungs, right? Um, you know, American democracy is, seems to be teetering on the edge. You know, they're just, it seems like everything is about to collapse. And, and I think for young people coming up right now, it must be so fucking hard. It's like, you know, I'm walking into this party in the, at the stage where everybody's already puked all over the place and the ashtrays are full and the beer bottles are knocked over. And all I can do is maybe clean up some of it or keep the house from burning down. But I sure as fuck, I'm not going to have a good time at this party you guys have been having. I mean, I can understand the rage and the despair and, the concern. So I certainly don't want to minimize that, but I do feel like people are overwhelmed by being concerned. And, and it kind of, it's, it's like the guy who chases five rabbits catches none, right? Like, Mm. as you're saying, we need a priority one, one focus. And even the way young people's minds are, are being, sort of shaped by technology now it's almost impossible to focus on anything right like they're they're looking at you but they're looking at their phone and they're thinking about where they have to go next and it's like wow it's really hard like that flashlight is very diffuse and you can't really see anything clearly there's sort of this concern consumerism in a way yeah and I don't know if we could turn it into a portmanteau or something, but like that, that there is this it, simultaneously. It's as though we care way too much and don't care at all, which right. is a strange paradox, right? right? Because if you care about everything, do you actually care? It's just like with our material possessions to use an analogy. If everything is precious to you, nothing is precious to you. Mm. And I would say the same thing is true with our concerns. Now, of course, we are concerned about our material possessions, but we're also so concerned about these things that, well, quite often it's faux concern. It's mimetic concern. I'm going to look at my Twitter feed or I'm going to look at Instagram and see what everyone else is outraged about. And therefore, in order to be a right or correct person, I need to hop up on that pedestal with them. I call it off the rack self-righteousness. Because it's looking at what should I be outraged about? I'm going to try that on. The problem is you can tell when it's affected versus when it's genuine. Generally, you can. Because if it's an affected thing, you'll see the same talking points over and over and over. And 
eventually someone might actually become concerned about that particular concern. But is it actually your concern or did someone else tell you to be concerned about it? Yeah, I was just reading an article. I think it was in The Atlantic uh, about this Bud Light uh, rebellion you know, like every, it's like hundreds of millions of dollars in stock value just evaporated. Uh, and it seems like it was a grassroots kind of uprising, but it was all orchestrated mm. by some far right religious groups mm-hmm. that, you know, paid to have these videos made and posted on TikTok of people shooting cases of Bud Light and you know, all this stuff that's, it, what's it called? Grassroots, uh, t- t- AstroTurf, right? So mm-hmm. it looks like it's grassroots, but it's all artificial. The whole yes. thing was fucking ginned up by yeah. political groups. Uh, mm-hmm. It's amazing. And and even if it wasn't, is that really what I want to be concerned about? Let's <laughs> say it really was a grassroots uprising. And this is why I say simultaneously, no one cares because you don't really care about it because a week from now there'll be something else to be outraged right. about. And it's now, shitty beer. A... <laughs> right. Like, why do I care whether you whether or not I mean it's poison anyway. Like why yeah, do I care exactly. what kind of poison that what brand of poison you subscribe to? I don't give a shit. Yeah. You can do whatever you want. And I think the biggest problem with we, we call it cancel culture, which is the worst misnomer because it's not really cancel culture. It's advertiser culture. And we are self-censoring ourselves in the worst ways now. Not only you know, before we knew, thanks to George Carlin, there were seven words you couldn't say on national TV. Right. You could you couldn't say fuck shit, cock, piss, motherfucker, cocksucker and tits. Exactly. Those are the seven words you can't say. <laughs> you you and I both memorized those at a young age. <laughs> <laughs> but now I don't even know what I can and can't say because of the self-censoring because I don't want to get demonetized from YouTube or whatever. Nonsense. YouTube doesn't owe you advertisements and people are always complaining about oh I got demonetized. I got sh- stricken or whatever it's like you know youtube gives you a platform that you can upload 4k video for free do you know how much it would cost you to have your own server like Mm. six figures a year if you have a lot of traffic seven figures a year and youtube gives it to you for free and now you also expect them to give you advertisers well they aren't required to give you anything but at the same time if you force yourself to play by some ever-changing rules this is what happens. Instead of saying porn now on YouTube, people will start saying corn. Do you know about this? No. You can't say yeah, porn? Because not, you can't say porn because you know, whoever, Johnson & Johnson, is afraid of putting their advertisements on a video that talks about pornography, right? And I get it. If I was the marketing director in charge of that campaign, I also wouldn't want my videos for Tide Pods being on a video that's talking about <laughs> Pornhub. And so people they get around it by saying corn hub or they uh, instead of saying sex or spelling out sex because everything has the the um, subtitles now, they'll say segs, S-E-G-G-S. And these are all just creative ways to sort of manipulate the algorithm so that people can encourage advertisers to put marketing messages on their videos. I don't know about you, but when I grew up, it's weird because advertising is kind of cool now for Gen Z and and Gen Alpha, I guess they're calling it. But for me, when I saw like Radiohead or any rock star, movie star being part of an advertisement was 
not just detrimental to their career they saw it as gross why the hell out. would i want to be a part of that yeah. yeah and now selling out if you don't sell out is the way to sell out like right and 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 so it's really weird to me because i think the biggest political problems that we have and and the biggest um uh problems with self-esteem and and uh needless desire one might say has to do with the advertising landscape that we have set up and we've monetized everything we've monetized attention and made everyone the product so we can sell a bunch of other products and services to them we want to aggregate their eyeballs onto our channel not to inform or educate or inspire or entertain but it is to simply sell them yeah, synthetic underwear Oh, nice callback. Nice callback. <laughs> hey, you know, you can you can prick your finger, but don't finger your prick, okay? <laughs> Do you remember that? That's from the same Carlin bit, the seven words you can't say on television. Yes. And like, tits, tits shouldn't even be on the list. Tits, it's friendly. Tater tits. <laughs> It's so good. And and I think he was so prescient because um, it's almost as though he saw the many of the problems that the, the terminus of these problems that were mm. just sprouting then in the 80s and, and before then, uh, as we began to aggregate everyone's eyeballs onto television. And now it's more it, it's more bifurcated. You know, there's a bunch of different streamers and and uh, a bunch of different places for people to spend their attention and when you add it all up we're very busy but we're not really getting much of anything done in fact for me busy is the dirtiest four-letter word in in our language right and yet we treat it as a badge of honor it's like the status yeah, symbol that's funny it's like yeah we, we wear busyness like we would wear like a a, a logo on a handbag or on a, a or, the emblem or, or on a, a luxury gold. car or a, a gold chain, you know, it, it yeah, yes. we wear it as, as an emblem of our importance. Like, oh, I'm just so busy, man. I'm because, you know, everyone needs me. I'm so, <laughs> I'm so important, you know, like, well, yes. just say it, just go ahead and say it. You think you're fucking yeah. important. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If you're a brain surgeon <laughs> and, and you're busy, okay. You know, I, I buy it, but you're some fucking, ag, you know, agent or something like, oh yeah. You know, there's just not enough of me. The, to the go irony. Around. Right. But the irony is that the brain surgeon is generally not very busy. They can't multitask, right? <laughs> they they, they yeah. have to be doing that one specific task. Otherwise, someone dies and there's high stakes. Yeah. But when I meet someone new and they're like, what have you been up to lately? Like for the longest time, I would say, oh, I'm just so busy because it's exactly what you said. I'm so important that everyone requires my time. But when I say I'm busy, what am I really saying? I'm saying my life is out of control. Because every time I say yes to someone, I'm unthinkingly saying no to myself or something that is important to me because now everyone else's emergency has become my emergency. What's important to them is now urgent mm. to me. And, and so we fill our life with all of this, this busyness just through these micro yeses. It's easy to say yes to something. And in a vacuum, that yes could be a, a hell yes. But in the grand scheme of things, when you sort of zoom out, when I say yes, 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 yes to everyone else, I'm accidentally saying 
no to myself because there are only 168 hours in a week. And it feels like we're attempting to fill every single one of them with more, whether it's more podcasts or 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 more obligations, more housework, more lawn care, more text messages, more emails, more direct messages, more conferences. And yes, 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 yes. And then we leave the things that are important to us to someday, right? You know, that I'll get to those things someday as soon as I have more time. But of course, how am I going to have more time if I'm always busy all day, every day? I'm, I'm so busy. And you know, it was Henry David Thoreau, and I'm paraphrasing here. He said, you might be busy, but what are you busy about? It's not enough to be busy. What are you busy about? And that really changed my life. When I said earlier, I don't do a whole lot. Like You and I are having this conversation right now. This is my only priority right now. I'm not checking my text messages. I'm not going through um, my emails or whatever it might be. I'm focused on this right now. And later I'll have the priority, but the, the, the sort of lie of multitasking has, uh, and by the way, we all do it, right? You go into your local Chipotle and wait in line and we all look like zombies lost in our glowing screens. And I say we, because I'm a victim of this as well. Whenever I, I, I talk about any of these things, I talk about them, but they're so fascinating to me because I have victimized myself and I've given up my attention. I've become so busy in a uh, sort of calendar consumerism way, yeah. filling every moment. And we don't even have those interstitial zones anymore. We're waiting in line somewhere. We're at the doctor's office in the waiting room. Now I can fill every moment with more. Someone, some philosopher, I think French probably, said all man's problems come down to his inability to sit quietly in a room alone. Yes, Pascal. Was it Pascal? Mm-hmm. Uh yeah, and and it makes me wonder, like, and I don't mean to sound like, you know, get off my lawn kind of old man, but I wonder about people who are being raised with phones because they are never alone. You're never alone when you have a phone, right? You're yeah. always connected to your friends and the world and the news and the this and the that. And, you know, I'm probably 20 years older than you, uh, so there's there's a big generational gap, but um, you know I remember I was listening to an interview, fantastic interview um, between Rick Beato, who's a music producer and multi instrumentalist, yeah. with Daniel Lanois, who produced um, the Joshua Tree, uh, some other U two uh, albums, and uh, you know Johnny Cash and. Uh, uh, Bob Dylan and uh, Peter Gabriel. And, you know, like he's this, he's a superstar music producer, visionary guy, really just on, on another level. But he was talking about how when he was a kid, he remembers like the first 10 records he bought because he would save up for this record and he'd, oh, and he'd choose it very carefully and he'd take it home and he'd listen to it over and over and over and read the liner notes and look at the photos and just, just savor it and, and like suck all the flavor and, and just study it. And he said, now, you know, I, I listen to a song and there are another 30,000 songs in my hand that I can listen to. And yeah. You know, he said, I think because availability was more limited, we 
paid more attention, right? Uh, he's talking yeah. about in his childhood. But I, I always visualize it as like horizontal versus vertical, right? Like, like you know, it's easy to, there's a, a line, it's easy to love 50 women a little. It's hard to love one woman a lot, you know, or you can apply this to all sorts of things in life. Uh, and I wonder if it feels like the world, at least culturally, is stretching ever more horizontally and getting thinner and thinner vertically. And what yeah. you guys are talking about and a lot of what I talk about is trying to counteract that and get more vertical. Yeah, yeah. And it's a balancing act, right? Because we also don't want to have no choice at all, right? Sure. Because having the pocket full of 30 million songs or whatever it is, is preferable to having zero access to any music, obviously. Is it? Is it, though? I mean, think about medieval mm. times when someone would play the lute and someone else is... I, I don't like lute music particularly, but, you know, I would rather sit by a fire on the beach with someone who's a mediocre guitarist. I have more of a musical experience with that than I do, you know, listening to fucking Spotify and, you know, some curated playlist that some algorithm has created for me. And I don't yeah. mean to sound elitist. I'm just saying there, there's more spirit to it, you know? Yeah. And I think obviously we can't put the toothpaste back in the tube at this point. No more nurdles going back. Nurdles. In the tube. But, um, <laughs> but so we have to learn how to live with it and how can we create, and this isn't like a prescriptive thing. I don't have an answer for you. This is a genuine question how do we create that experience in a way i mean i can tell you how how i do it i don't know that it works for anyone else but every friday i just go on to apple music which is my preferred streaming platform and i um will look at the new releases of albums and uh i i do it manually so i don't let any any playlist do it for me and then i will tend i tend to pick three or fewer albums that week and then some of them stick for the rest of the year and for multiple years others just sort of go by the wayside if i don't enjoy them um but that's the only way that i found that curation works well for me when it comes to new music the other thing that i do is i do outsource that curation in another way i will use pandora regularly and there's only three stations that i listen to regularly but um one's a zen garden station so sort of just background music there's probably some loots in, involved in that to some extent. But um, I I allow that to sort of just be the background music. Another station that I listen to is Sigaros. Are you familiar with the band Sigaros? Mm -hmm. Oh, you'd absolutely love them. They're Icelandic. They're like, uh, spiritually, they're like the Icelandic version of Radiohead. Oh, Sigaros. Okay. Yeah, I didn't know yes. that's how it was pronounced. But I, I recognize the, it's two words, right? Right, it is. Right. Yeah, okay. Yeah. yeah. And so uh, the, they have uh, they, and they sing in their own language. They call it Hopelandic. And and so it's it's the closest I've ever been to, like to a truly religious, spiritual epiphany mm. um, was I was at a concert of theirs in Cincinnati in 2012. And um, everyone's singing the words, but they're words that don't exist. They they're not concepts like our words are. When I say, well, this is a glass or this is a microphone, it's a concept. 
they're singing words in Hope Landing and everyone's singing along, but it doesn't mean anything, but it feels like it means everything. Mm. And and to me, that that's the beauty of music. When music allows us to, when it transcends language or intellect and it puts us somewhere in a way that, that I think no other art form can really do. Um, yesterday I was talking with a guy from Taylor Guitars and, uh, they're going to send me a guitar, uh, beautiful, fucking beautiful guitar. And I'm going to learn to play guitar. And this is like, uh, part of my, uh, you know, try to keep my brain from sort of, uh, calcifying, (laughs) you know, I can learn something new. Um, and uh yeah i i was thinking when you were talking there i was thinking a couple of things one is is that's going to start and i'm i'm beyond ambition obviously right like i i i have no illusions i'll ever be a good guitarist or anything but i'm excited to be bad at it and i yeah. feel like that's a place i probably have never been before in my life where i'm you know, I think I, I spent a lot of time being anxious about being bad at things. And I've gotten to the point where I'm actually like, I think I can enjoy being bad at things. And um, again, I was I was reminded of that conversation with Daniel Lenoir because, you know, here's this guy, this, you know, just colossally famous, respected musician. He, he also does beautiful, uh, his own original music. Um, but anyway, he said, People come to me and they're like incredibly talented and they say, well, should I go to Juilliard or should I just like, you know, take my band on the road or, or should I play, you know, for Sting or, you know, what should I do? Like, and, and he's like, I don't give a shit about any of that. He says, what I, what I say to them is play me three notes that you love. Mm. And he said, if if they don't know what I'm talking about, I know there's no there's nowhere for this conversation to go. He said, just play me three notes that you love. And and if they play three notes, I say, yeah, okay, now you're on your way. Now you know where to go. Just follow that, right? And I mean that I find that inspiring because shit, man, if all I need to do is play three notes that I love, even I think I can do that. You know? <laughs> you know? Yeah. Well, <laughs> what you're talking about is the difference between kindergarten and grad school. Like you can go write another book now and that's like grad school. There's, there is ambition involved, but there's no kindergartner who's worried about graduating <laughs> kindergarten. Right. <laughs> they're there. They just show up. They're enjoying the notes. That's funny. Yeah. And, Hopefully, and they're not yeah. trying. Right, right. I mean, we, uh, my stepdaughter, uh, she just turned 10, but she was technically in fourth grade last year, but we started homeschooling and we sent her to this unschool. Um, so it's it, this couple, they were teachers for this J. Krishnamurti school. We live up in Ojai and J. Krishnamurti has a school up there called Oak Grove and it's pretty unstructured, but the these two teachers who were there, they decided they want even less structure. And so they started their own school. And um, when they started it, they bought an old elementary school and sort of ripped out all the desks and all the, the regular accoutrements of uh, traditional 
learning, the learning system. And um, so when Ella, my stepdaughter, shows up there and and it's uh, first day of fourth grade is what she tells me. And I say, well, actually, there are no grades here. Mm. And so the six-year-olds are with the 16-year-olds uh, and they're learning from each other. That's but great. also the, cl- the classrooms have no uh, desks. They have no curriculum. They have no syllabus. They have no homework. They have no assignments. They even have no teachers. There are a few adults around they call mentors that you learn from, but it's self-directed learning. And they're just sort of showing up like you were going to with your guitar and like, I'm going to play around with this. I'm going to break it a little bit. I'm going to figure it out in a way that works for me, not a way that is prescribed by society for me. And yes, you might play similarly to other people who play guitar because there are some conventions that make sense. But we've all seen videos of the people who play guitar in the strangest possible ways where they sit it on their lap and they're they're, Mm. they're, they're beating on it like percussion or whatever it might be. And they got there not through convention, but through learning it on their own. And that's what I love about this unschool that my stepdaughter goes to. She will just show up and it's like, what do you want to do today? And she might end up sewing her hand to the far, the, the, the garment that she's trying to put together or whatever, and <laughs> she'll learn from that. Or they have a tiny little recording studio and she might go in there and play around with something or they have baby goats at their feeding or chickens and or they have a garden or whatever it is. It's showing up for that day. It's not saying, all right, today is the day we need to learn about the presidents or yeah. whatever it might be. Those things, when she's interested about those things, we we dive deep into it mm. as opposed to forcing it onto her. And I think right. that's where you are with the guitar thing. It's if two years ago I said, Hey Chris, here's a guitar. I need uh by Friday, I need three notes from you that you're gonna be playing. <laughs> like, get the fuck out and you of better here. love them. That. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> or else. Yeah, exactly. Well, it's funny that you mentioned that. I, I just this morning I I, I tweeted a, a link to an article by a guy named Peter Gray. Um, I quote him pretty extensively. I think in Civilized to Death, he's an educational expert, and and he this essay that I I linked to is all about the importance of multi age learning environments, and it's it's yeah. you know, and you think about it like who does an eight year old respect? A 10-year-old, right? Like someone who's accessible, but ahead. A fucking 40-year-old is, you know, (laughs) I I remember I had a class in Spain when I was teaching English. I had a class of, uh, I think they were eight-year-olds. They were, you know, funny little, like half animal, half human, I think around that age. And I remember saying to them, uh, I want everyone to write down on a piece of paper how old you think I am. I think it was my birthday or something. And and I got all the papers. And man, the guesses ranged from like 14 to 90, right? (laughs) Just like, I don't know, out there somewhere. You know, it's, it's yeah, amazing. this happened to me recently with with my daughter. She uh, this was two years ago. It was my 40th birthday. And I said, uh, my birthday's coming up next week. Do you know how old I'm going to be? She's like, I don't know. I'm like, well, you're eight. So how old do you think I'm going to be? She's like, 83? I, I love the tone. I love the 83. I don't <laughs> yes. know, dude. Stop bothering me with your bullshit. <laughs> right. That's it. <laughs> you're old. And it's funny. <laughs> well, it, and, and I heard this great, I don't even know, it's some mystic who who said it. Um they said, if you didn't know your age, how old would you be? Mm. 
And that really resonated with me, right? Because I think quite often we try to act our age and it's programmed to us in school. And by the way, that schooling environment where it's like, all right, we're going to segregate you with all of the nine-year-olds this year. And next year you'll be with all the 10-year-olds. But of course, when I was in the corporate world, I didn't work next to all the 27-year-olds. And next year I'm going to work with the 28-year-olds. And this department is where all the 23-year-olds work. That's insane. All right. Yeah, yeah, that's that's funny. Oh man! All right, listen, we could talk all day, but we shouldn't do it. We should uh, we should go and do nothing for a while, <laughs> wash our black t shirts. It's it's all always... underwear if applicable. <laughs> if applicable, it's always great to talk with you, man. Uh, and likewise, uh, congr- brother. My wife says hi, by the way. So yeah. I'll tell Bex you said Bex. Uh, hi. Likewise, Bex, please do. Yes. Um, was there ever just following up on what you were just talking about? Was there ever an age when you looked? Well, let me let me let me put it in my own experience. I can remember looking at myself in the mirror when I was a teenager and thinking, "That's not what I look like." Like in my head, that's not him, right? Yeah. And somewhere between like twenty-eight to like maybe 35 I'd look in the mirror and be like that's me Mm. and now I look in the mirror and it's the the, it's like who's that old dude like that's not me (laughs) you know was there do you relate to that was there ever or is there or will there be a time when you look in the mirror and you're like yeah that resonates with what's going on inside yeah, I'm, I'm just turning 42 right now. And I'm starting to get a little bit of that where I'm like, I, I'll get the weird angle, the weird glance in the mirror. And I'm like, oh, that's not the guy. That's not the whole complete finished fixed product that is Joshua Fields Milburn. Um, yeah, there was probably a time I mean, th- throughout most of my late 30s is probably like where I felt like that. That is that solidified version. But of course, as soon as it solidifies, it begins to melt. And uh <laughs> I think intellectually, though, ever since I was about 14, I've I've um, that's when I got my first job uh, that was well, actually, that's not true. Quick story for you. I got my very first job the month that I turned four. So I guess I was technically three years old. I um, we were really poor. And so like we lived in this shitty apartment complex just south of Dayton, Ohio. And I, I knew I heard my mom complaining about money and and Um, we didn't have any milk one day in the fridge. And so I walked down to the main office of our apartment complex and I, I asked them for a job and they were like, what? You're three. And like, what do you want to do? I want to pick up trash. There's a lot of trash here. I want to go pick it up. And they're like, okay, we'll give you a dollar to go pick up some trash. And I said, two. He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel Say what you want to say You're gonna die one day For example, I could kiss you Just because I want to What's the difference if you turn away I'm gonna die one day Why do you waste your time Thinking about your reputation Trying to meet an expectation Wondering what they're gonna say When everyone you've ever known Is headed for a headstone I don't wanna give the end away 
body is an animal, doesn't ask for much. A little music and a soft touch. Why don't you let it out to play? Your heart is in a birdcage, singing in your chest. You wanna shut it up, but give it a rest. You're gonna die one day. Why do we waste our time thinking about a reputation, running from a confrontation, wondering what we ought to say? Go down. We'll go singing to the smoke alarms. We'll dance into the ground.